Roger. And I'm Andrea, and this is Two Vets Upstate. This is a bittersweet day. It's our last episode of season one of Two Vets Upstate, and we are taking the rest of the month off to enjoy the holidays and plan out next season. So happy holidays to all of you. We'll do our best to keep you up to speed on what's going on for veterans over the course of the next month while we're away. And if you haven't seen it on social media already, our first event in 2019 will be a live show with the New York State Health Foundation in New York City. Yes, we recognize that's not upstate New York, but work with us here. Uh, We'll be there on Tuesday, January 8th at 1 p.m. We'll have the event registration on the show notes and throughout our social media over the next few weeks. Uh, We really hope to see you there. For our listeners who are New York City-based, we know there's quite a few of you. Uh, This is a great opportunity for us to engage with all of you, um, and we'll be talking about why we started the show in the first place and what we hope to do next. We have had quite a run this first season, and we've had some awesome guests, talked about some important issues. Thanks to everyone who came on the show or listened to the show or left us a rating or review, hint, hint, for making this an awesome inaugural season. So, uh, Roger, what are you eating or drinking today? Well, let me just be brutally honest and say that uh, I am recovering from a weekend of upstate microbreweries and poutine. I know, I know, super duper healthy. Uh, So it's just water and a little bit of uh, Earl Grey tea for me today. But a big shout out to Middle Ages Brewery in Syracuse and and Empire State Brewing for keeping me uh, well hydrated this weekend. Andrea, how about you? Um, have you tried Harvest Spirits Applejack Reserve? Because I totally did this morning at about 11 o'clock. Um, I stopped by the, the distillery on my way back from the gym to pick up some gifts. And uh, so apparently my morning uh, kicked off with a shot of Applejack before continuing on. Um, but it, it's really good and very festive. <laughs> uh, you're living your best life out there, aren't you? Yes, I am. Thank you very much. <laughs> Roger, what's new with you? Uh, Well, like I mentioned, I was lucky to be in Syracuse this weekend. Uh, We're getting closer on the housing front, which is encouraging. We're not quite there, but we're we're close. Uh, Saturday morning, I was fortunate to join City Councilor Joe Driscoll, Mayor Ben Walsh, uh, State Senator-elect Rachel May, and a whole slew of other community members at the Rally for the Grid in City Hall in Syracuse. Um, for those who don't know, just a quick, you know, 15-second primer, Syracuse is facing what's really a monumental infrastructure decision, uh, whether to rebuild the I-81 viaducts that currently cut the city in half, destroy development opportunities, and have really led to the worst racial poverty and segregation in the country. Whether we do that, we rebuild those, or we tear down the highway that's been so divisive and replace it with a community grid that will maybe lead to better development and hopefully start to bring our our city back together. I hope we get it right this time. I'll link to a story about the decision that led to the viaducts and its aftermath in the show notes. Uh, Also, real quick, uh, shout out to Pam Hunter, who was a previous guest. I was lucky to be her and Joe Driscoll's guest at a holiday party for the American Legion Dunbar post 1642 on Saturday night. It's always Nice to be around new community in a place where you might live. How about you, Andrea? What's new? Where are you? So I'm home in uh, Kinderhook and Valacia, uh, watching the snow that fell last night melt. 
Um, since our last podcast, I've been in Miami, New York City, and D.C., in addition to home. Um, I thought I would be telling you that I came back from Montreal this morning, but thanks to an ice storm, my friend and I decided against driving there last night for a concert. Uh, so uh, that's, that's my fault for putting off to the end of the next week to get the snow tires put on my car. Uh, but I'm home all week. Um, I haven't been able to write for two months, um, but I started writing again yesterday, and so I'm really excited to start publishing again next year. Um, the reason we I had to take a pause was it was fundraising season for service to school, and we essentially doubled our budget in, in a, about six weeks. So uh, now I can breathe and attack the next three articles that have been on my whiteboard nagging me since October. Um Unfortunately, had to work yesterday, so missed the American Legion Post 184 holiday party, but they also launched the PFC Dwyer program, which is a local program to support veterans. Um, so really excited to hear uh, more about that. Uh, we've got the New York 19 Veterans Advisory Committee meeting tomorrow, so it will be great to hear about uh, developments locally. Um, and then finally, for our listeners who are attending the Student Veterans of America Conference 3 to 5 January, come find me at the Service to School booth. It would be great to see you in person. So, Roger, what's going on in New York? Well, we got a couple of things coming up. Uh, mark your calendars. Uh, the New York American Legion's Midwinter Conference is coming up January 25th through the 27th, a weekend, uh, near Andrea, near you, your neck of the woods. It's in Colony. Uh, at a hotel there. So that uh, will be a good way to start programming off for the American Legion uh, for the upcoming year. Um, also, the Syracuse University and the Institute for Veterans and Military Families has announced the first ever Veterans Writing Award. Um, go check it out. The deadline to submit is 15 February 2019. So what's going on across the nation that uh, impacts veterans? So um, the Service Women's Action Network recently released a survey that noted that nearly 40% of active duty women are reporting fertility problems compared to about 12% for civilian counterparts. Now that's an absolutely astounding statistic. Um, I'm a little, I have some mixed feelings about this study because it was not a scientific study. It was just a survey. Um, so it was a fairly self-selective group. Um, that said, I think it is very valuable to revisit this issue with, uh, scientific peer reviewed research. Um, anecdotally, I do think there's some there there. So it would be interested to see what kind of questions come out of that survey that can be pursued in a more, um, methodology, methodologically sound manner. Um, and, uh, thanks to Patricia Klein and Derek Coy for sending this, uh, Roger, what else is going on? Well, back here in Washington, D.C., on Wednesday, there will be a joint House-Senate Veterans Affairs Committee hearing to review implementation of the VA Mission Act. This is the law that allows veterans to seek medical care outside of exclusively VA facilities. Um, undoubtedly, though, members of Congress will also ask about other recent high-profile foibles like the GI Bill housing stipend scandal, which we talked about last episode, uh, and their basic inability to provide and sustain a functioning IT architecture. Uh, we will be watching and remembering how VA plans to do healthcare IT different for veterans than they have for the GI Bill and other veterans. And just one final note, also in the Senate, and this is something I've been tracking pretty closely, is uh, we have a problem and we need your help. Uh, the Senate is still struggling to clear a 
House passed bipartisan measure to extend benefits related to Agent Orange exposure to Vietnam veterans who served offshore. This is what we call the Blue Water Navy Bill. It's currently, it was brought to the House for a voice vote, excuse me, brought up in the Senate for a voice vote last week and was sort of unconscionably objected to on the floor of the Senate by GOP Senator Michael Enzi of Wyoming. Um, He's been joined by GOP Senator Mike Lee of Utah. Um, They have concerns about the costs of the bill, uh, its implementation, and and the science behind determining whether veterans who served on ships were exposed to Agent Orange. Uh, Spoiler alert, they were. It's for me, it's it's disingenuous in that Lee and Enzi have no problem voting for billions of dollars in tax handouts uh, that add trillions of dollars to the national deficit. But the moment actual veterans struggling against negative health effects come forward to get access to care, suddenly now it's too expensive and we have to think about the deficit. So we hope that all of our listeners, if you happen to be in Utah or Wyoming and you're a constituent, um, give your senator a call and just tell them how you feel. I, the Vietnam War was half a century ago, folks, and it's time that we get this issue passed because if it can't be done before Friday, this Friday coming up, uh, when the 115th Congress is scheduled to adjourn for the final time, uh, veterans will have to start all over again from square one next year, and we hope that doesn't have to happen. So time to call the Senate team and, uh, and win this one for Vietnam vets. But with that being said, Andrea, who do we have for shout-outs this week? So first, happy belated birthday to the National Guard, 1636. And the other is uh, we wanted to give a shout out to those selected for the Black American National Security and Foreign Policy Next Generation Leaders, upstate New Yorker, West Point grad, current Columbia SEPA MPA student, and New York 19 Veterans Advisory Committee member Dan White made the list. Ooh, yeah. yeah. I'm also proud to say that uh, I worked with Dan on his applications uh, through service to school. Really incredible um, person, and he joins that list along a whole slew of other amazing leaders. Um, When our national security profession reflects the diversity of our country, um, the whole nation benefits. So proud to stand beside these phenomenal leaders. Andrea, I, I forgot to wish you a happy birthday last episode. Yeah, you did. That was my bad. I, uh, I, re- I regret the, that slight oversight. Everybody, wish Andrea Goldstein, uh, CEO, podcast extraordinaire, happy birthday. I uh, hope uh, this happy next birthday. year of your life is as good as this past year uh, was. A lot of big things for you. Certainly glad to have you around here. Happy birthday. I owe you a nine pin the next time we see each other. Thank you. And I think that's a great introduction to our special guest this week. Um, So, you know, Roger and I are both Navy veterans and Yankee fans. And our guest this week is both a U.S. Army veteran and a Mets fan, but we won't hold that against him. Go Army, beat Navy. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) We got to get it in when we can. I know. We're losing control here. (laughs) Our guest is Congressman Chris Gibson. Uh, Congressman Chris Gibson is a former officer in the U.S. Army and member of the Republican Party who served in the U.S. House of Representatives for New York's 19th Congressional District from 2011 to 2017. A lifelong resident of Kinderhook, New York, Gibson joined the United States Army in 1986 after graduating from Siena College. 
He served tours in the first Gulf War, Kosovo, and Iraq, rising to the rank of colonel. He later taught American politics at West Point and was a National Security Affairs Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He has received four bronze stars and a purple heart, among other awards while in the military. He holds a PhD and several other degrees from Cornell University, and in 2008, he published his first book, Securing the State, which offered his overview on national security decision-making. He retired from the Army in 2010 to run for Congress um, and was reelected in 2012 and 2014. And this is particularly remarkable because the district was redistricted during that period. So I uh, had to run essentially for Congress for the first time twice, uh, both in the 20th and then when we became the 19th. Gibson made a name for himself by focusing on local issues like expanding access to broadband and better treatment of Lyme disease. And during his tenure in Congress, he served on the Committee on Agriculture and on Armed Services. In January 2015, Gibson, a supporter of term limits, announced that he would not seek re-election in 2016. Congressman Gibson has been a visiting professor in, professor in leadership studies at Williams College since February 2017, and he is also most recently the author of Rally Point, Five Tasks to Unite the Country and Revitalize the American Dream. Please welcome Congressman thank Chris you. Gibson. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Roger. Great to be with you. Thank you for what you're doing here on this podcast. I think it's a very valuable service that you're rendering for the whole uh, veterans community. And also thank you for your leadership and your service to our nation. You know, you're just mentioning moments ago, the Blue Water Navy bill. That was that was my bill in the time that I served in the U.S. House. At one point, we got over 300 co-sponsors. How frustrating it was to not get that into law. You both, I think, have put your finger on something that's so vitally important is that there's an injustice right now. We have uh, veterans who are suffering and we're finding every which way from Tuesday as to why not to take care of that. And at the end of the day, there isn't a single excuse for this that mm -hmm. needs to happen. You know, out of frustration, my last year, we tried something asymmetrical. Uh, we actually defunded the executive order that changed the actual law. Uh, not known to, I think, uh, or not widely known, is the initial law actually covered Vietnam veterans who had served offshore. This is actually the Agent Orange Act of 1991. But what happened in 2002 is there was an executive order that narrowed the definition of who would be eligible. And that's when the Blue Water Navy veterans were excluded from coverage. So we tried so hard to actually change the underlying law. And for some of the same reasons that you pointed out moments ago, we we're not able to get it across the line. And so during the appropriations proceedings in 2016, I offered an amendment to defund that executive order and it passed. <laughs> so, so we were hoping that that would, the same would happen on the Senate side because then all the language were reverted back to the original language and we would have in essence achieved the intent. We would have had the coverage. So let me just echo what Roger and Andrew mentioned moments ago. If you're listening out there and if you can reach out, I was tracking the floor conversation earlier this week and last week uh, with Senator Enzi, and I'm aware of Senator Lee as well. But it, look, the, two things. One is this is a justice issue for these veterans who have been suffering. There's so many maladies directly associated with exposure to Agent Orange. We, the people, we need to do right by this. We need to change this and make sure we're providing the, the ver this care that and, the, uh, and all the benefits that go with that for these veterans. 
you know, that's, that's the first thing. The second thing I would tell you is, is that they've identified a pay for. So, you know, there's really no excuse here. I mean, this bill is ready to be sent to the president to be signed. And yet here we are just days before the end of the session. And if we're, as you point out, Roger, if we don't get this done, it's, it's going to have to start over again, just as the, the Congress, the 115th Congress had to start over again when unfortunately the bill that I was carrying was not enacted. So let's get this done. So thank you for that shout out for the bill, the Blue Water Navy bill. And this also brings up a topic that we've talked about frequently on this on this podcast, which is who counts as a combat veteran and, and does that matter? What do you think about that? Well, you know, I, I look, if you think about what the oath of office is, we raise our right hand and uh, we, we solemnly swear, you know, to, to follow the Constitution, to support and defend it, and to really f- to follow the orders of those above us. So to a veteran who takes that oath, and follows the orders, wherever they end up serving is, is so long as they serve honorably and well and competent, they're a veteran. So I've, I've never found a lot of value in these distinctions because it's as if the veterans who did not go in certain places, it was against, it was something that they did wrong. Well, they followed orders. So I, I think we have to take a more, uh, more robust definition as to what it means to serve uh, in uniform, and uh, to look towards the justice, towards towards those veterans. So, so you're a lifelong Republican joining mm-hmm. a podcast with two progressive veterans mm-hmm. uh, and Navy veterans at that. Um, what are your thoughts on veterans continuing to serve in other parts of government? Well, I'm a huge proponent. Uh, I will tell you that uh, you know uh, Rye uh, Barcroft, who has a uh, an initiative called With Honor. Uh, you know, I. I talk with him from time to time and really try to spur him on. I, I think that, you know, what this country is missing right now, veterans have to offer. And, you know, regardless of what side of the aisle a veteran uh, sits on or, or, or identifies with, the thing that veterans share in common is they're mission-focused and they're service-oriented. And my six years serving in the U.S. House – I felt like that ethos was missing. I mean, there were times I'd be in the cloakroom and I would hear from folks, my colleagues, and they would say, boy, this is hard. And, you know, yeah, it was challenging, but it wasn't hard like like we've seen, like as Mm -hmm. veterans seen. I I think about those days in Iraq and Kosovo and other places and what we asked our young men and women uh, to do. And look, they they did Herculean acts in, in a very courageous service achieved under the most extraordinarily difficult circumstances, we should expect the same of our elected leaders. And so one of the things I saw in veterans, my time uh, that I was serving is, is that was an ethos we shared. You know, Tulsi Gabbard and I, we are, she's a Democrat, I'm a Republican, but we work together on a lot of matters. And, you know, quite frankly, I mean, we probably agreed on close to half the issues. And, And that's what, you know, if you disagree on half the issues, if you agree on half, let's work on the things we agree upon. And so that's one of the things I think will help our country is to see more veterans run for office and to serve. And I believe it'll help the country heal. And I actually think it'll help us be more more functional. We'll start to tackle some of the more pressing issues, which we have not been tackling, regardless of party, by the way. I I blame both parties for, for the major challenges we're in today. 
Um, and that, that's such a good point. And I absolutely agree with you. And I think about when I was reading your book, um, I found times where I was nodding along sometimes where I was like, no, I'm not so sure about that. And sometimes where mm-hmm. I just completely disagree. Mm-hmm. But the point is that there were so many portions where I was like, I, I agree with the end state, or mm-hmm. I agree with part of how you mm-hmm. want to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot that there's a lot to be said for that. Now, one of the things that Roger and I talk about a lot is, is our, our discomfort with veterans being put on a pedestal and, mm-hmm. and some nuances right. not being seen. Um, and, and I, to be frank, I think a lot about Congressman Duncan Hunter, um, currently being indicted, but even before that, he was openly hostile to, to the equal participation of women in the national defense. And how can veterans be the answer to partisan gridlock when some clearly don't respect the service of their fellow veterans? Well, I think like any other endeavor, uh, whether you're in the military or you're in Congress or you're in business, uh, I, I really would urge all to not get caught up on one-offs. You know, when we have a situation where there's an impediment here or impediment there, one neat thing about service is that you really get comfortable with major challenge mm-hmm. and there's a real tenacity and a doggedness to achieving what is the team's goal? So if you have a situation where, uh, you know, I, I, in my remarks just moments ago, I talked mm-hmm. about what veteran members of Congress share in right. common. And there's quite a bit. That's not to say that we shared everything. And there were some outliers as far as even, you know, the behavior uh, of, of different members. But I, I would focus more on what unites us than what, uh, you know, maybe we don't have in common as far as veterans are concerned because, you know, in a democracy, you know, we, one of the things, you know, we never, we're not trying in this country to homogenize thought. What we really, we celebrate our diversity, but what we want to do is honor our unity. And I think that that's where we can find strength. So when you have a situation, my recommendation would be is if you have a situation, say you're in a group project and you got five, six veterans, seven veterans, and you're doing something and there's one veteran that's a problem for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. whoever that may be, you know, do two things. One is focus on getting the mission done and then see if you can bring that person along. You never know. I never give up hope on anyone. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one thing. I always think that there's room for growth for all of us. So Mm -hmm. it's possible there'll be a conversion for whoever it is that is that problem, but don't wait on that person. Just keep pushing that, you know, pushing that rock and trying to get to the end to the end state, even or even despite of, uh, in spite of that that person who's a detractor. Incidentally, let me just say, I know Duncan Hunter. I've known him for many years. I, I look, uh, I, there are parts of Duncan I find endearing. I mean, because I, I, I know him so well, and there are times when he really frustrated me. Uh, I sat in a hearing where I thought he was very unfair to General Odierno, who was the chief of staff, Army at the time. Mm-hmm. And he went after him uh, on a whole line of very aggressive accusations and questions that I didn't think was fair. And so, you know, my duty, I feel, is that I point it out to him and say, look, Duncan, you know, I think what you just did was really wrong. So, you know, I, I, I see your point. I would also tell you I've seen Duncan on better moments, and I know that he's capable of more enlightened behavior. So, you know, I would hope that, you know, Duncan and with others, that we could find a way to sort of bring them along. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that strikes me about Congressman Hunter and and sort of post-2016 writ large uh, congressman is this notion that there is a difference between how we behave um, and how we persuade and talk to one another, you know, behind closed doors or in group projects and and an entirely different thing when we're talking about public figures who are 
you know, figureheads for a particular group or a particular segment of society and how, you know, certain individuals, when they say certain things, whether it's about women veterans or it's about, you know, white nationalism or whatever the case may be, serve as essentially dog whistles. And that galvanizes particular segments of the population. And, and we end up focusing on that rather than on the middle ground about how we come together and how we defeat things like radical nationalism and this notion that women aren't full and equal participants in the defense of this country. So how do we fight back against that? You know, how do we win this fight well, against the so, in this country? So let me give you an example, actually, that is uh, in point to what we've just been talking about. So uh, I'm trying to remember the exact year. It might have been 2014, but uh, so when the administration, this is the Obama administration, when they were considering uh, what they were taking action in Syria, among the things that they were looking at doing was arming what they described as moderate rebels. And uh, knowing that I had been a critic of some of these things, I mean, I'm very informed by my combat experiences. I'm a peace through strength type of person. I think we've been way too quick to use force. And so, you know, based on those experiences that I had, some very challenging experiences. We had loss of paratroopers under my command and others who were grievously wounded. I'm not a pacifist. I mean, I'm a realist. I, I think you have to defend freedom. And I think if a country attacks us, we're going to respond in kind and it's going to end on our terms, not theirs. But I think we've been too quick to use force. And so in my time in the Congress, I was opposed to military action in Libya and I was opposed to military action in Syria. I'm not an isolationist, by the way. I think there's a real need for American leadership. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the diplomacy, the, the advantages we have in so many areas, including our economy, the moral strength behind our ideas, give us great referent power and leadership. But we shouldn't be leading with our chin with regard to Syria. So, you know, the administration was respecting of that and reached out and said, would you consider supporting arming these rebels? And so, I, you know, I told them I would give it a close look. And so in during that time, and media is on me, what are you going to do, Gibson? You're going to support this? I said, I would look at it. I need some time to reflect on it, to read it. And so it took me a couple of days. But at the end of this, I decided it wasn't going to work. I mean, they wanted to spend a half billion dollars and then more. And I didn't feel that we were going to be able to identify who these so-called moderate rebels were going to be, how we were going to have accountability of the weapons, how were we going to ensure efficacy of the training program. And so I recommended a no. So I see Duncan Hunter. So this is we have a hearing and I see Duncan uh, in as we he walked, took a break from from the hearing and he was he was white as a ghost. He was just looking really agitated. And I said, what's the matter, Duncan? He goes, this vote is killing me. It's killing me. And he says, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to vote no. I said, only because there's no hell no button or I'd vote, I'd vote the hell no. And he goes, really? Sincerely, you're going to vote no? And I said, absolutely I'm voting. He goes, Gibby, really? You're going to vote? I said, absolutely voting no. And so, you know, I explained to him why. Well, later that day, Duncan voted no. And he grabbed me the next day and he goes, oh, I feel so much better. That was the best advice that I, I was ever given. So to answer your question, you know, here's a, here's a situation where I had an opportunity to engage with another member. We, we had a chance to talk about the issues. And, you know, he's somebody who evolved into the position where he saw the logic that I was presenting. So, you know, what I tell you, Roger, is I don't write anyone off. You know, I, I, I see the world as, as it is, and I call out wrong when I see it. 
but I still believe in, I believe in change in people. And I, and I also believe that, so while I'm on that topic of change, I mean, while I do believe people can change, I'm also a realist in this sense. I think in each and every one of us with no exceptions, I think we have an extraordinary capability to love and to sacrifice. But I think if we're being intellectually honest in each and every one of us, there's a dark side too. And so what we endeavor to do every morning when we wake up is that we look ourselves in the mirror and we say, today, I'm going to be a good person. Today, I'm going to be the best person that I can be. And I think if we do this every day, Aristotle talked about this, you know, and before him, Socrates, can virtue be taught? And they said, yes, virtue can be taught. You expose somebody to a mentor and through day by day, by habit, eventually uh, virtue becomes ingrained. And so if on these issues that you raise, Roger, uh, issues of division in our country, issues of uh, very um, antagonistic philosophies that aren't really showing the best light of America, that which in, we enunciated in our founding documents, that we were all equal before the law, all these things that uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, when we have philosophies and when we have moments when we have people who are not following the highest ideals of America I think the role of leadership is to point that out and then to hopefully inspire people to come you know I, I wrote about this in uh, after Charlottesville I felt compelled to write about this I was really disappointed in the conversation and the lack of accountability and what was happening to our country and you know what I said about this is that the, the real problem in Charlottesville, the problem was Friday night. It wasn't Saturday. And Saturday was already too far gone. When, when, when these individuals were marching up and down Friday night with tiki uh, lamps or what have you, the president should have tweeted at that point that, look, you need to go home. You know, it's true in America. You have freedom of thought and freedom of expression. But the expression that you're bringing forward today is not helpful to the country. And you should go home and think about that. And hopefully have, an, have some kind of epiphany and realize that, there, that if you want to live to your highest aspirations as an American, that you will embrace the ideals of America. That was the leadership we needed was on Friday night in Charlottesville that sent them home, not towards Saturday where, where it was already primed to have a, a major incident. So that, you know, that's my response to you is I, I, I fully believe that leadership makes a difference here. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for that, Congressman. Um, so you've we talked about public service. Um, you've dedicated essentially your entire adult life to public service. What uh, and on the theme of things that are challenging to do, what in your assignments has been the most challenging one? Would you say? Well, look, I mean, our service in Iraq um, it, it was ex- it was exceptionally challenging. Uh, you know, in Rally Point, I point out that uh, that I don't think we should ever invaded Iraq. I, I, look, I, I think that was a mistake. Uh, certainly, we needed to respond after 9-11. I do believe we needed to respond to al-Qaeda, and they needed to, uh, to be defeated uh, after their attacks, uh, unprovoked attacks on the United States of America. Uh, but Iraq, look, Saddam Hussein, not a good guy. Uh, but there's a lot of folks that lead countries that are not good folks uh, around the world. And I think if we're not attacked, then we should not be starting wars. And I haven't said that, you know, like like so many others in my time, in my service in Iraq, every morning that I got up, regardless if I had two hours sleep or five hours sleep or whatever it was, I was there to lead and I was there to accomplish a mission. And so that's what I was focused on. 
But, you know, what I saw over there is, you know, what we were asked to do was really, really hard was to bring secure, was to help uh, bring security and then to help rebuild institutions or even in some cases build institutions that were not existent. And so, you know, I, I think that uh, among all the things that I've done, I mean, to, to do that, uh, was the most challenging. You know, these these tours that I had were variegated. I, I was in the first Gulf War, as it was mentioned, but I had three tours after 9-11. You know, the uh, the first one was in Mosul, uh, working for uh, Colonel Brown, then a striker brigade commander. I was an airborne infantry battalion commander, uh, but our unit was chopped. Uh, we were sent on no notice to Iraq. Uh, and, you know, it started off working for Colonel Milley, uh, 110 Mountain, uh, uh in that road that connected the airport to the green zone. And I worked for him for about a month. This was the period when they were having the real problem with the VBIEDs. And, you know, we were sent on no notice up to Mosul after the mess hall was bombed uh, up uh, in December of 2004. And so we were up in Mosul when the streets were on fire near daily gunfights, very, very challenging uh, kinetic environment for my paratroopers. And we had killed in action and grievously wounded. Uh, the next tour, I worked for H.R. McMaster in Talafer. So, you know, some folks have read about that campaign, and it was really special to be part of that campaign and, you know, the, the help that we brought to the Iraqi people, not only the security, but essentially helping them with their institutions. So that was a different kind of challenge, I must mm-hmm. tell you, because paratroopers are trained to take the fight to the enemy. And as I write about in Rally Point, you know, actually uh, in another article I wrote for Military Review, one of the challenges we had in Talafra was catastrophic success. You know, when you have a secure zone and you're actually making your way up Maslovian ladder, uh, you know, working your way from security to, you know, to, to housing to, to – to, and you work your way up into, into commodious living, into, into economic vitality, is paratroopers, especially those that had combat experience in Mosul in the previous tour – you know, they long for the fight. And so to tell them that this is what winning looks like. I mean, you're not supposed to be in direct fire gunfights uh, when you're in counterinsurgency. Ideally, you want to pacify uh, the enemy activity and, and begin to help the indigenous people make their way towards uh, a, rebuild, a rebuilt life. So, you know, those were, but all of these, and in my last tour was a G3, a multinational division north during the surge. So they're working for General Mixon, and then one higher up was General Odierno, and two high up uh, General Petraeus. Um, but all of those experiences, I have to tell you, really were the toughest public service. And I'm talking about considering everything, considering you know, uh, even the Balkans, and then the work I did in, in Haiti, uh, and then my work in Congress. The hardest work, I believe, was in Iraq. And, uh, we, we've talked a lot on this podcast about um – the authorized use of military force. And, and you talk extensively in your book about executive overreach. And we've seen on this um, executive overreach across multiple administrations. And so how do we, how, how, what would be the impetus for Congress to revisit the fact that wars are still being fought under AUMFs that are almost old enough to vote? So this is a real problem. Uh, and there's some irony in what I'm about ready to tell you. And that I truly believe this. We're going to need a presidential candidate that is going to have a platform that says, I'm going to empower the people. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to move power back to the people and the people's representatives because this was not a heist. 
the president didn't take this power from the people and the people's representatives. The, the people's representatives gave it away. They, they don't want those hard votes. And so just as it took Congress to give it away, it's going to take the president to actually say, we're going to change and we're actually going to require a debate and a vote before troops are put into harm's way. So I had a bill in the time that I served called the War Powers Reform Act. You can Google that and take a look. But it actually got pretty strong bipartisan support at its height. It had 52 co-sponsors, including Adam Smith, somebody who I really respect, a defense intellectual who's the highest. He's going to be the chairman now of the Armed Services mm-hmm. Committee. He was a co-sponsor of my bill. And uh, you know, it was a very curious situation where I had uh, – Freedom Caucus, Tea Party Republicans, and progressive Democrats. That's who, if you look at the who are the 52 co-sponsors at its height, it was really from, uh, it looked like a Star Wars bar scene. But what they shared in common was a deep belief that for our country, we were never meant to be uh, a nation where one person by fiat would take us off to war. And what we have seen increasingly over the last five or six decades is presidents from both political parties have taken us off to war without the consent of the government. So the War Powers Reform Act, what it did is, first of all, clarified, because what I noticed in my colleagues is there was a lot of misunderstanding about the War Powers Resolution. The War Powers Resolution was enacted over veto. Uh, President Nixon had vetoed the War Powers Resolution, and Congress two-thirds uh, in both chambers, actually put it, uh, voted for it, so it actually was enacted. But no president since the War Powers Resolution, no president of either party has acknowledged the constitutionality of it. And concerningly, my colleagues believed that a president could do anything he or she wants for 60 days, uh, and then after 60 days, there has to be a vote. There's one problem with that. That's not what the War Powers Resolution says, but what's significant is that's what my colleagues believed. So in the War Powers Reform Act, I actually take that language out. And then the other key move in the War Powers Reform Act is it it says that the presidents may not draw on the treasury. They may not appropriate funds and obligate funds without the express consent of the Congress Mm -hmm. through a vote. So that's the big change here is is the the purse, tying the purse. Because, you know, I anticipate my critics on this. Some of my critics say, well, you know, what if we just want to – you know, convince, compel our potential adversaries by mobilizing. There's nothing wrong with that under my bill. You can mobilize at Fort Bragg. You can put TV cameras. You can spend money to put C-17s on the tarmac and load them up. You can even move to an intermediate staging base, an ISB. You just can't put troops into combat or imminent threat of combat without that vote from the people's representatives. I think this is absolutely necessary. You know, it, now, of course, there is an exception by Constitution if we're attacked mm-hmm. first. Right. If we're attacked, then the president, just as FDR did, when, you know, I always, and my students, I show them that speech, which is like the Gettysburg Address. It's a very short speech, that speech on December 8th. You know, he, what FDR does is three things. He tells the American people what happened on December 7th, the day that we live in infamy. He tells us what happened. And then he actually says, here's what I've done as the commander in chief. And then the last thing he says, now I'm asking you, to declare that as of yesterday, a state of war existed. So we know that presidents, in their role as commander-in-chief, they have certain uh, prerogatives and and, resp- and and authorities, but not to start wars. That was supposed to be with the people and the people's representatives. So you know, th- this is something I worked on, and, and it, it actually – in part was the AUMF, but it was it was larger than that. It was actually the War Powers in general, which is why I brought forward the War Powers Reform Act. And we, we've talked recently on the show about you know the the fact that these endless wars are making 
a lot of veterans and a lot of disabled veterans. And now we're starting to see the the back end of that, which is the fact that the VA has not really modernized um, and, and administrative veterans at the same time. So how do we reform and modernize the VA, especially for a generation of veterans yeah. that's been at work? So great, years? great. Uh, that's a great way of phrasing that. And, and let me just to tie it together from, with the last issue is that uh, when I was always trying to build support for the Blue Water Navy bill that mm-hmm. we talked about earlier, occasionally I'd run into somebody and they'd say, well, you know, we, uh, I like your ideas, but it's too expensive. And I would do two things when I said that. First thing is I would push back and explain. But then I'd say, if, if you think it's too expensive, then I definitely have a bill for you. It's called the War Powers Reform Act, because then you should be trying to stop these wars. Because if you if you, if if these happen, if these wars happen, and we send our servicemen and women into combat, you know, it, it is a solemn obligation of the rest of us, the 300, 320 million Americans, that we we then fulfill our obligations to these veterans. So that brings me to your question is, what do we do about this situation? Because you're right, for the next 50 years, we're going to be living with this generation that has been fighting now for nearly two decades. Not to mention, we'll still have Vietnam veterans that are still among the living. And of course, we still have Korean War veterans. And, and, and thanks be to God, we actually still have some World War II vets among the living, even though we know that every day we're losing more of them. So you know, I would tell you the first thing on this issue is we actually have made some progress. The VA accountability bill... You know what we did. Uh, this is now this is now the 114th Congress I'm talking about uh, a few years back. But what we did was a compromise. You've alluded to some of the disagreements among the parties. Um, the Democratic Party wanted to, in general, uh, expand the VA. The Republican Party, in general, wanted to make more accessibility to local doctors. What we did is, in this case, we actually compromised. We, uh, the bill that we enacted, President Obama signed, we, uh, we created 27 new clinics, and we staffed them with doctors and nurses and the resources that were necessary to address the issue with, for more expanded capability in the VA. But then we also started the CHOICE program. And the whole point of the CHOICE program was to complement the VA. So if you had a situation, there were two triggers for the CHOICE program. One is, is if your appointment was more than 30 days. Yeah. So, you know, the whole point was that you would get access. You wouldn't have to have this backlog. This came after the Arizona problem we had, the expose there. And uh, so, you know, that that was uh, one trigger. Another trigger was just distance. If somebody lived so far away from a facility and it was a hardship, that it could be approved. And, And how we did this is, is if you were a provider who actually did Medicare or Medicaid, so you already certified with the government, then you could apply to be certified to be a choice provider. And uh, now look, there have been hiccups with it. There have been growing pains. I, I do have always been supportive of this concept. I think it's important to, to strengthen the VA. And I also think it's important that particularly when we have a excess demand, mm-hmm. we have to find a way to have a supply. It's, un, it's unsatisfactory to me mm-hmm. that we would have excess demand and no treatment for these veterans. So I do support both dimensions of, of that bill. We've I've I've been pretty open about my my adventures with the VA, which is, have actually been largely positive. Mm-hmm. Mine and, have been positive too. I and, must say. Yeah, and it's been an interesting fact. I've used Boston. I've used Albany. Um, the oddly, it seemed like I was one of the people who experienced a fluke with Choice, where it took me longer to get an appointment than at the VA. Mm-hmm. Um, although I was in Boston, a block from MGH, so my commute there was not very long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But, I mean, there are other modernization things. Like, I have an iPad that they sent me for free so that I don't have to go up to the VA as frequently. And that's something that we think about. We've talked a lot about this is how do we get the pieces that work to be replicated yeah. 
and those pieces that no, are really so not true. working. So, out, right? you know, there's a couple other bills that uh, I think have made a positive difference. One is the SAVE Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, Tim, my friend, uh, Tim Walls, who is the highest ranking enlisted man to ever serve in the U.S. House. He's now, uh, come January, he's going to be the governor of Minnesota. But Tim and I worked, as I mentioned in the book, Rally Point. But, I mean, we worked together on a lot of things. And among those was the uh, Clay Hunt um, Suicide Awareness and Prevention Bill. And, you know, Clay Hunt was a United States Marine who was an incredible combat veteran from a conservative Republican family from Texas. And, you know, this guy distinguished himself uh, during combat and he came home and he had demons and he knew it. And he was doing his best to overcome it. And he was making marked progress. And then he lost his life in a completed suicide. And the family took on this issue. And Barack Obama, I was at the, uh, I was had the privilege of being invited to the bill sign with, with uh, Sergeant Major Walls. And one of the things that Barack Obama said, he said, look, you know, here I am, a progressive Democrat, and I'm with a family who's conservative Republican family from Texas, but politics doesn't matter on this, and we can find a way to come together. So this Clay Hunt uh, bill has expanded mental health services. And in fact, my wife, who's a licensed clinical social worker who works at the VA here in Albany, she she went to tears one time when she was with a veteran, and he said unsolicited, he said, the Clay Hunt Act saved my life. Because one of the things it did was we had veterans for a period of time, and Roger, you both remember this, mm-hmm. that unfortunately some of the veterans who were suffering from post-traumatic stress and other maladies, they had some infractions, and then they were discharged without the access to mental health. The Clay Hunt Bill uh, changes that and makes sure that these veterans get access to the mental health treatment. And so this veteran felt that it saved his life. So I want to say that that was a step in the right direction is addressing Mm -hmm. these mental health challenges. The other you alluded to earlier, you talked about the Dwyer Bill, and you're talking about this. So this is a peer-to-peer program, and I think it's really important because, you know, one of the things we both have just said moments ago that we're getting good treatment at the VA. One of the things that I found when I look into this at great length is we do have remarkable programs to help veterans. But what you'll hear tragically too often is we'll lose a veteran. And why that is is that we lose them in the dark of the night. You know, they're having dark thoughts. They're having really bad thoughts. And then they'll spiral downward and we lose a veteran. And so the Joe Dwyer program is really meant to complement. It's, 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 it's a peer-to-peer program to help our veterans through the, through the roughest moments, knowing that if they can make it through a really hard night, that there are programs that can help them in the light of the day. And so that's where I think we can – there are areas where I found seams. I found where we didn't have full coverage. And one of them was this, is that when we have these, these wonderful programs that help engage with health care, with mental health, with education, you know, with uh, uh, trades, all kinds of the hel- uh, hard hats, uh, helmets to, to hard hats – all these great programs, and then you hear of a suicide, and you're like, my goodness gracious. And so there is that. And then there's also uh, the National Guard, I'm finding, actually, is doing really well. Uh, not that they're perfect. I know that they're not. They're humans. How could they be perfect? They can't be perfect. But they actually have some really wonderful programs that help with the Yellow Ribbon Reintegration Program. And actually, in my time working with Peter Welch uh, on the Armed Services Committee, uh, Peter, a Democrat from Vermont, but I mean, we sponsored uh, to actually learn some of these lessons from the National Guard and bring them to our soon-to-be active duty service um, separate uh, people who are separating, because you know when they showed back home. When they went, sometimes the neighborhood didn't even know they were home. 
You know, in best case, of course they do. But in some, not in all cases, you'll, you'll just when you think you're making a difference, you'll find out that there's a veteran struggling. This happened here in the 19th district mm-hmm. where I learned of this veteran struggling. I didn't even know the veteran was home. I was like, we've got to do better than this. We have to know when these veterans are coming home. And that's one area where the guard actually does better is they actually have a very hands-on knock on the door, check on people. Whereas when we have people separate from active service, sometimes they go back home and there isn't there isn't a health and welfare check. There isn't like a first sergeant equivalent shows up and knocks on the door and says, hey, I'm so-and-so. And I want you to know we have these programs. And, and here's, my, here's my cell phone. If I can ever be helpful. And to get them integrated into the veterans community. So this this is where I think we need to be going. If you're asking, you know, I, I think that we need to recognize that we have seams here where we don't have coverage. And a lot of this has to do with peer to peer assistance. And I think the Dwyer program is going to make a positive difference. Congressman, you are a you're a good man. And I think you are, although we disagree on probably some issues, you were a good congressman. Um, but you left Congress in 2016 um, of your own accord after self-imposing a term limit. Why do you think term limits are important, and why did why did you hold yourself uh, to one? <laughs> it comes it actually it comes right out of the military ethos. You know, one of the things uh, we used to always joke, right? In the infantry, say you know the graveyard is is filled with indispensable men and women, and you know as a commander, you know you have a great run. Maybe it's two or three years, and at that command ceremony, maybe just for a moment, you'll entertain the fact. Or not the fact, but the notion that nobody can command this unit like me, right? And then, you know, you hand off your colors, you're feeling proud, you start to walk off the field, and you look over your shoulder and you're like, holy smokes, that guy's marching them off just fine, you know? And everything, of course, that person is. You know, I mean, the fact is the service goes on. And, you know, it's not about us individually, even though we take our responsibilities seriously. It, this, this is not about us. It's about, it's the, it's the, it's the whole mission. It's, it's about the service. It, it's about the unit and it's about the country. So I think this is really important when it comes to our public life is that we have over time evolved into a permanent political class and I'm being polemical here, but if we have a permanent political class, how is that any different from a king and a queen and an aristocracy? I know that's argumentative, but the whole point is we were meant to be a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And you know, I, I think what that means for us is this really harkens back to citizenship. And you know, today in the political discourse, we talk about rights. Heck, I talked about rights. They're really important. I mean, the whole Bill of Rights, they were all important to me. But you know what? That's only half the story. I mean, the whole idea of citizenship, self-governance, is that we have rights and we have responsibilities. And does it mean voting? Of course it means voting. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. I mean, as citizens, our responsibilities go well beyond just voting. I mean, we, we're to be involved. We're to communicate with our representatives. We're to hold them accountable for their pledges that they make and for their actions that they take. Uh, we have from time to time, we may need to volunteer. We may need to run for office for a period of time. But you're getting the point here that a government of the people, by the people, for the people is a government of all of us. And so I think it's important that we have this uh, civic involvement, this revitalization of citizenship, and I think that means citizen legislators. And this is where I, I do support veterans stepping forward to run for Congress. And for me, that meant leading by example. I feel very strongly about all this. So obviously, it would have been less than impressive if I just sat back and say, you should run for office. And well, what about you, Gibson? Well, no, not me, but you. So I did it. I, I stepped forward. I did it for a period of time. I'm, I'm really honored to have done it. It's a great privilege. Uh, I'll be candid with you. I'm, 
I'm, I'm also loving my new life. <laughs> I'm glad to be on the other side of that. But but I do think that uh, it's important to 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 find whatever it is that you can do to help the country. And if that means running for office at a period of time that I strongly believe you should. Why should we have term limits? Well, I, it's it's essentially this. Not only to, to augment what I just said, it's it's also some fundamental philosophical views I have. And that is, I, I mentioned earlier about my realistic views of of humankind. Let me add to what I mentioned earlier that the power of the human mind to rationalize is extraordinary. It's truly extraordinary. And uh, we all, every one of us, when you can rationalize anything. And when you, I saw this happen down in Washington. I, like, for example, the, the so-called Patriot Act. And, and, and again, I fought and bled for this country. I, I believe in liberty. I believe in defending it. But I also believe if the government's going to listen to your phone calls and read your emails, they need to follow rules. They've got to stand before a judge and make a case for probable cause. And then a warrant is issued. If the government doesn't follow rules, they don't get to listen to your phone calls and they don't get to read your emails. So I feel I'm a stickler for this. So, so I was part of the team, the leadership team, to try to amend the so-called Patriot Act. We had the votes to do it, and we failed. And I watched what happened. I watched my colleagues on both sides of the aisle that I knew that were with me, that believed it was wrong what was going on, and yet they still voted to reauthorize it. And they voted for it. Why? Because if you woke them up in the middle of the night, they truly believe they're a good person. They, of course they do. And, and you know, it's easy to look at Congress and say, what a bunch of scoundrels, or maybe worse, you go, to Mark, <laughs> you go to Mark Twain, right? And you can find some things about that. But, you know, if you woke up, if, if you woke up members of Congress in the middle of the night, you won't find a single one that'll say, I'm a bad person. They all believe in their heart they're a good person. And, and so when they, what happened is when it came to crunch time on fixing the so-called Patriot Act, President Obama, John Boehner, and Nancy Pelosi all locked arms and started breaking arms. And they did whatever was necessary. To some people, they enticed them. They gave them incentives. Hey, you know, this, that, the other thing. To other people, they said, you like this? Well, how are you going to lose it? I watched this happen. And I watched people who told me they were going to vote against the reauthorization so that we could fix particularly those two sections that are most onerous, the so-called business records, Section 215, and, you know, this this whole thing about, um, lone wolf, they call it. And there's some issues there with technical that we could go into, but we were going to fix that, but we didn't get, we failed on the vote because of the rationalization that went into the minds of these members that decided it was better to give the swamp the vote than it was to stand up to do what's right. Because you know what, if they, if they give the swamp the vote, then maybe there'll be a chairman next time. And, and this happens. That doesn't, I'm not saying they're a bad person. I'm just saying that's the power of the human mind to rationalize. So then you start to think, well, what are ways we can combat that? Well, one of the ways is term limits. If, if you say, look, you're going to have a window. You're going to have a horizon. You're going to serve for a period of time. It's not about you. It's about your service. Well, one of the ways to help people, keep people focused is to say you're going to have a horizon. This is going to be your horizon. Now, you may be happy to know, Roger, I've moderated on the issue. I actually would accept 12 years now, but I still think I still think you need a term limit. This has been a phenomenal interview and a conversation. Um, what are your parting thoughts? So, well, first of all, thank you. And thank you for you know this, uh, this wonderful podcast. Uh, my final thought is to keep this going. You know, I see the, I'm honored to be among uh, the first year interviewees uh, for this program, and I can see you're drawing uh, a very eclectic and impressive group, and uh, humbled to be to be with them. And I urge you to keep that going. I think this is something that it was very empowering for veterans, 
and so so thank you for this opportunity and i and i wish everyone all the best Thank you, Congressman. And uh, so to wrap up our, our season one, Congressman Chris Gibson, thank you for joining us. Uh, Roger, uh, I guess I guess I'll see you in 2019. Happy holidays and happy new year to our audience. Roger, do you have any parting thoughts? January 8th, New York City. Be there. We'll have the information about how you can see us and engage with us live uh, in the show notes. But man, Season one, coming to a close, putting this season in the books. We'll be back for season two. And until then, everybody, uh, I wish you, from my family to yours, uh, happy holidays and a happy new year. The same to you, uh, Andrea, of course. See you all in 2019.